Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week's episode is another conversation from Psychedelic Science 2023, the world's largest ever conference celebrating advancements in psychedelic research and culture. In today's episode, our hosts Anne and Lewis Goldberg connect with special guest Dr. Carl Hart, chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, where he is also the Ziff Professor of Psychology. Dr. Hart joins us to share his point of view on drugs, addiction, the state of the psychedelics movement, his new role on the MAPS board, and more. If you're interested in learning more about the Breakthrough Psychedelic Conference, Psychedelic Science 2023 and its host, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Dr. Hart, MAPS, and Psychedelic Science on LinkedIn and Twitter. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Carl Hart of Columbia University. Check, check, check. Every time I hear check, check, I think check, baby, check, baby, one, two, three. Well, I was a DJ. Were you? Yeah. Where? Miami. Back in the days when hip hop. No, the... you got to hold this to your mouth, man. This oh, is totally oh, part of it. Oh, we're talking. Oh. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, so we're yeah. talking. Yeah, so you were yeah. a DJ? Yeah, I was a DJ. My first book, High Price, I, I talked all about that. Yeah. Doing concerts with Run DMC and things like that. I, I am a fan, um, and your books have changed the way I, I think about drugs. I'm a kid of the 90s. I, I was subject to all of the dare stuff and all of the, like, just all of the messaging, your brain on drugs, the stupid eggs in the frying pan and all of that stuff. Um, for listeners who don't know you and your work, I don't want to introduce you. I want you to introduce you. Um, so it's difficult for me to introduce myself because I mean, I'll just do it shortly. Uh, um, I'm a neuroscientist professor at Columbia. Um, I study drugs in people. That's, uh, that's where most of my science occurred, but I also study drugs in, in animals. Uh, when I say study drugs, I'm trying to understand just the basic sort of uh, properties uh, of drugs. What effects do they produce in humans? Uh, all of the effects. Uh, a number of people in this space, when, it, when we talk about the drugs that we're talking about, they like to focus on drug addiction, and drug addiction is only a small percentage of, of, of the effects that drugs produce. Most of the effects are positives. And so uh, I, it took me damn near 20 years to realize that, you know, because the science, the science funding is so biased towards uh, the negative effects, which is addiction. Uh, and so I was a loyal uh, follower of that uh, church, um, and, um, and now I've been rescued from uh, actually it's a cult so, so I've you've been, been born again um i've been born again that's right you know it's interesting the way you describe um addiction um 
it, it's thought of om almost only physiologically, especially for chemical addictions. Um, and there's a lot of thought from guys like Gabor Mate who believe that addiction is an expression of trauma um, and that, you know, the, the person who is addicted is just unable to deal with whatever the traumas that they've had in their life and they numb out. When, as you've looked at drugs and drug use, how do you perceive addiction? Yeah, so um, addiction is whatever the ruling class says addiction is. Um, in this case, the ruling class is the medical establishment. And the medical establishment uh, has uh, told us that addiction is this thing called substance use disorder that's in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, and there are 11 symptoms um, uh, and people have to endorse a certain number of symptoms in order to meet criteria for substance use disorder. That's one component. And another component is that the person must be distressed or impaired by those symptoms. Those are two, so that's, those are the two requirements to meet the current medical state of addiction. Now, um, that changes. Uh, that is not stable. Uh, it, it changes according to the ruling classes' um, sort of uh, wishes. Um, and so uh, the, the point is, is that um, uh, addiction is a made-up phenomenon. You know, so like when we start to get into this issue of is it physiological, is it trauma? It's made up, you, you know. Uh, well, but, but somebody who is, you know, a, an alcoholic or has opioid use problems, right? I, maybe the word addiction is too laden, but, you know, there is an obsession and a compulsion component to use, right? And I, no, 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 I don't buy that. See, that's, that, again. Okay. If a person has a problem with alcohol or opioids, I bet you that person has a problem in a number of domains in their life. Uh, for us to selectively or uh, exclusively like look at alcohol or opioids, that's stupid. And that's what we've been. Um, and so, um, uh, so we, just because I have a hammer and that hammer uh, focuses on opioids, doesn't mean that that's what that person's problem is. That person's problem might be um, intellectual uh, uh, underdevelopment. They just need to uh, uh, become uh, more skillful in inhibiting in a number of areas in their, their uh, life. Uh, but we pick out addiction because we have a label for addiction. And so, um, I, so I don't play that game. I understand that we have to um, have a label in order for people to get reimbursed for their insurance. Uh, I get that. But, but, but um, I am not here for that. I'm here for a broader understanding of how humans behave and what is controlling human behavior. And so this notion that, oh, they express trauma. Yeah, they have trauma. And they have some fucked up shit in their life across the board, not just, as, not just for drugs. And so if we're gonna talk about the person's life, let's talk about that person's whole life and not let's selectively look at drugs. So you have um, talked about uh, this idea of addiction as a brain disease promoting, you know, social injustice. And, and can you talk a little bit about how that has um, really shaped how you think about drugs and people who use them? 
Yeah, the notion, again, I think that's a great example of how this thing, addiction gets warped, this sort of label gets warped. It gets so warped that we now are saying that it's a brain disease because drugs affect the brain. Like you and I having this conversation, uh, if I stumble, does that mean I have a brain disease in my sort of words uh, because uh, the brain is important for talking. But that doesn't mean that I have a brain disease because I, I don't screw up with some words. Um, uh, the real reason that we say that drug addiction is a brain disease because it sounds more sciencey, not because of the evidence that support it. Because when you, uh, you read some of my papers, I've taken apart the evidence that so-called, uh, that has been suggested to support this notion of drug addiction being a brain disease. Uh, now, if we're talking about a brain disease, we can compare it to something like Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is progressive, irreversible, and ultimately fatal, right? Um, and you can also see some um, uh, atrophy in the striatum uh, of people who have Parkinson's disease. None of those things are true for uh, drug, uh, drug addiction or substance use disorder. None of those things are true. Uh, and you can do the same thing with Alzheimer's. You can do the same thing with other things that we think are a brain disease. And so the reason that we say that drug addiction is a brain disease is because it sounds more sciencey and the National Institute on Drug Abuse can go to Congress and argue um, uh, with this science medical language um, that drug addiction um, uh, is so horrible um, that they need more money to treat it. And so on the one hand, uh, you, you sympathize because you want them to uh, research drug addiction, whether it's a drug disease or not, or a brain disease or not. But on the other hand, you want scientists to show some fidelity to data. And in this case, they violate that. You know, it's, there, are, there are guys out there who say, hey, I can do a brain scan on you, um, a PET scan, um, and say, I can see, you know, from the structures of your brain that you have bipolar disorder or you have schizophrenia or you have alcohol use disorder and even claim that they can tell the difference by looking at these scans and say, you know, you have substance use disorder or you have a behavioral disorder. When you hear people make those claims, is the first word that goes off in your mind bullshit? Um, the first thing that goes off is that stop listening because this person is either an idiot or they think you're an idiot. And I have no time in either case uh, because um, there's no data to support what they're saying. Uh, and if somebody is actually saying that, you know you have before you an idiot or they think you are one. <laughs> there, there are companies that are now working in this space researching the use of different psychedelics to treat addiction. You know, when you, when you look at those companies, and there are, you know, there's one, for example, that we've worked with called Awaken um, out of the UK who, who has worked with both um, ketamine and MDMA and are getting great results um, of combining uh, psychedelic experiences with CBT much better than like 12-step programs. What are your thoughts about those, those types of efforts? Yeah, so uh, when we think about 12-step programs, I'm thinking like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so um, those sort of programs are really good at uh, increasing social interactions for people. So you 
have these groups and people get together and fellowship. That's a great thing. You want humans to have these social interactions. And, um, but when it comes to their commentary or comments about drugs, nothing uh, what they say typically comports with evidence. Like, for example, once an addict, always an addict. Like, for example, you have to hit rock bottom. And, I mean, there are a lot of nonsense sort of things said about drugs that is not supported by evidence. And it's difficult for us in a society to hold those two opposing things in, our, in the same hand, in that uh, it's good for fellowship, social interaction, but bullshit on the drug stuff. Uh, but that's what we must do. And now, so when you're comparing some other treatment to um, um, the AA model, it's not surprising that another treatment uh, is superior. Um, all you have to do is be halfway correct on why people are experiencing problems with drugs. Um, and, and then you will, uh, you'll see a, an improvement. And so I'm not surprised, and I'm, not also, I'm also not surprised that you have a psychoactive compound that you're using in order to treat people who have a substance use disorder. The most successful treatments are agonist treatments. I mean, uh, you look at the evidence, and, and so, um, yeah, so maybe if people can get a psychoactive substance of their choice without having to worry about legal impediments, maybe they'll do better in life. Wow, what a revelation. That ain't hard to find unless you're a moralist. Uh, everybody else sees that. Um, I want to talk about, uh, Rick was on stage the other day um, and said, uh, I invoked your name and said, um, the more dangerous the drug, the more it should be legal. So I kind of want to talk about your thinking about the legalization movement, the decrim movement, um, and what is your ideal um, world look like when it comes to drugs? And also, what's your definition of a dangerous drug? Yeah, so... Those are four questions. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. They are all, they're all relevant. Um, so to contextualize this, you know, I'm a black American who grew up in the hood in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And so people, if you don't know what that means, go read some, what is it, critical race theory or something. Um, so given that that's the case, I really believed in the principles that we espouse in terms of who we say we are. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all of those sort of things I believed in. I believed that they were fundamental rights of ours. So when we, th when we start thinking about substances in that context, um, it's inconsistent with who we say we are uh, to ban these substances. Uh, it's inconsistent to not let people have bodily autonomy. Um, and so it's very simple for me. The drugs that people seek, there are only a few. I mean, some of the psychedelics, some, uh, an opioid like heroin, um, cocaine, MDMA, uh, the drugs that people seek, they should be regulated by the government to make sure uh, that uh, the products are pure, safe, 
and it, it can provide an opportunity for us to educate the public how to use them. We can also have some sort of requirement before people get a license, let's say, to purchase these drugs, just like we do with driving an automobile. Um, and so my thinking on this is I'm trying to be consistent with who we say we are. So is there such a thing as a dangerous drug? Of course, the drugs, all the drugs that we're talking about, from alcohol to nicotine to heroin to cocaine, can be potentially dangerous, just like driving an automobile can be potentially dangerous. Um, I flew in here just last night, and we had a lot of turbulence. The weather was um, pretty bad. And so that felt dangerous, but it's a good thing we had an experience pilot who've been trained um, and that made the situation less dangerous. There are uh, people who are in this uh, submersible uh, piece of equipment uh, that we're looking for in the Atlantic. That activity is potentially dangerous, but we are allowed to do those things as well we should because life is not without risk. Who wants to live a life that there's no risk? I don't want to live that kind of life. You joined the board of MAPS year two years ago. Why? Why did they want you, and why did you want to be on the board? I don't know if they wanted me. In fact, I think that... <laughs> they did. Uh, I don't know. There are some people who voted against it, so let's be real. Um, <laughs> Fuck the haters. Uh, you, you know, um, I joined, and let's just say why I joined. I joined because of my friend Rick Doblin. You know, Rick is one of the... Uh, few people that I know personally who actually is doing his damnness to live up to the principles that he espouses. And um, so I, I love Rick. Um, and if I could help Rick in any way, I'm there because Rick has helped me um, just tremendously by just being Rick. Um, and I've been remarkably surprised at the number of people in our space who do not live according to the principles they espouse, and Rick is not one. You know, th this this week here in Denver at PS 2023, we have seen this unbelievably bizarre panoply of people. Right, the 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 conference opened up with Rick, who was followed by Governor Rick Perry, who was fo followed <laughs> by Governor Jared Polis. We've seen Aaron Rodgers here. You know, we have seen this just amazing array of politics and culture and color and ethnicity and sexuality. And what is it about psychedelics that just spans everything? Well, you know, when you said that, I, I, the, I didn't think those beautiful things. I thought superficiality is the word that came to mind because um, I don't, I just don't know those people to be um, espousing publicly um, the principles that I think of when I think of psychedelics. Uh, this sort of, not inclusion for the sake of inclusion, I mean showing up for people who are catching hell. Like, there are people who are arrested every day in our country, I mean, for um, having a drug. For um, We all should be showing up when, when they're making these methamphetamine arrests. 
We all should be showing up when they're making these, when they're uh, making these fentanyl arrests. And we should all be showing up uh, when the government is not um, uh, uh, providing drug checking for people to make sure that they have uh, untainted drugs. Um, and so the list of names that you just rattled off, I was thinking, I, I don't recall uh, them using their platform to talk about the issues that I just laid out. And so it troubles me that uh, it seems that people are, are drawing a circle around the psychedelics as if it's, they're somehow different um, and not out there saying, hey, this is wrong arresting these people for this drug. Hey, this is wrong for passing these, this legislation that will enhance the penalties for possession of this drug. Yeah, I know we got rid of the Rockefeller laws, but we have things today that are equally bad. I mean, I'll give you just one quick example. This is the stupid shit we do. At the federal level, we punish infractions related to methamphetamine, pure methamphetamine, more harshly than we punish um, infractions with methamphetamine that's tainted. I know. It's wait, wait, can, we, can I unpack that for one second? Yeah. So pure methamphetamine That's right. is punished worse than if something that is tainted and cut and could actually kill you. Exactly. You got it. So the government actually would prefer a user to die than to be able to experience the drug in a safer form. Exactly. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, the government wouldn't say that they would want people to die, but certainly that's the way the contingencies are. And there are other laws. It's like, like the crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, right? Uh, it's, it's something like that because uh, pure methamphetamine is now punished more harshly than anything else, including crack cocaine. And so um, uh, it has replaced the crack in terms of the punishment. But there are other laws too that uh, uh, that's easy for us to go after. Like at the federal level, you cannot have paraphernalia. What's considered drug paraphernalia? Drug checking would be this. A scale would be this. All these things you want people to have to stay safe. I mean, and so when when I hear names like Governor Rick Perry, it's like what the fuck? You're in politics. These are the kind of things that I want them uh, to be going after. You know, we all have a role to play. If you're a politician, you know this. Talk to your boys about this bullshit. Um, you've talked before, um, I think just one of the biggest, you're very research-driven, very data-driven, um, and, and the fact that, and I, and I believe this was more in your, in your first book, but that we were conditioned that if you try drugs, you're going to die. If you try drugs, you're going to become addicted. If you try drugs, all of the horrible offals are going to happen. Um, most people in the world have tried drugs, and that has not happened. Um, is that is that the biggest misconception that people have? Or I guess what are do you have like the top three things that drive you nuts about the data and how it's used in in yeah. Our society. Yeah, there, there's so many. Uh, but one of them is um, this belief that uh, if you try a drug like heroin or uh, crack or, or methamphetamine, you will instantly become addicted or the majority of those users are addicted. And that's just not true. The majority of any users of, uh, of any drug uh, 
uh, do not meet criteria for addiction. That's one. Another one is that this notion of drug addiction is a brain disease. You can see these differences in people's brain. That's another one that's not true. Um, um, and another one is that uh, the illicit drug trade is primarily uh, being propped up by poor people. Um, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's no way poor people can be propping up such an industry. Uh, most people who use drugs are like me, middle class, uh, hardworking Americans. And uh, the myth is the opposite. You, you know, your books are also very personal. They tell your story, not only of how you got to where you are, but what you're doing today. And you may be the most high profile person to talk about your use of hard core drugs like heroin. You've done this on national television. Well, you just label uh, it hardcore drugs. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just <laughs> a no, drug. No, you're right. Sorry. Let me rephrase, let me rephrase it. Oh, that's but you okay. have been out. Well, look. We're the know, storytellers. We have to, we have to tell it. Really, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, was it yesterday? Somebody said the word spelling is comprised of the word spell because every word that we use casts that was a spell. Aaron Rodgers. It was Aaron Rodgers, right. He said that, right? Like, we, when we speak, we bring to to being so but you have spoken publicly about your heroin use and you've you've done it like unbelievably publicly you know um what has been the the feedback that you have been getting from this um because yeah. it, it takes a hell of a lot of balls to be that out you know i'm, I'm glad you 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 said hardcore because it, it, gave, it gave us an opportunity to uh, say something and you know it's okay like for people to make mistakes it's not a big deal we just we correct it and we move on. So I'm glad we we kind of we did that here. I correct him all the time. Yeah, and then, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you have no idea. <laughs> but it's a good. I think it's a good example because in our society, people are afraid to make mistakes, and I, I don't want that to ever happen. You know, I want people to be able to make mistakes, and so so we can have those kind of conversations. That's how we learn. Uh, but just being public about something like heroin use, as you were pointing out, uh, yeah, it's. The most difficult thing is not being public because um, I was public in order to encourage other people to be public. Uh, and in that way, people could see how many people are actually using drugs and being responsible, uh, taking care of their children, handling their responsibility. And hope, I was hoping uh, that the public uh, this would facilitate the public's uh, change of perspective when it comes to their typical drug user, but uh, that has not happened. Uh, people still haven't come out of the closet, that is. But personally, I don't, don't really have a choice uh, because uh, I have children, and I'm trying to model living like an adult living honestly. Um, and so people who have children and they're in the closet about their drug use, I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, because I couldn't even lie to my children about Santa Claus. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't have that myth, them growing up believing this kind of nonsense, the tooth fairy. I, can't, I couldn't do it because... Oh, I, I, I just, about a week ago, admitted to my 19-year-old that there is no tooth fairy. Yeah. See, I, I want... I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted my kids to really be critical thinkers and be able to deal with the world as it is. That's it. Um, and, uh, and so um, the biggest sort of 
difficulties I have about being an out-of-the-closet drug user, yeah, people want to focus on heroin, even though I said I used all of these drugs, but people want to focus on heroin. So the biggest problem I have is uh, having to entertain the, the crazy misconceptions that people have about heroin. Like, I heard you inject every day. I never said I inject a drug, you know, I'm afraid of needles, but they, they think this and it's like, if I did something psychoactive every day, I wouldn't be able to do my job. I wouldn't be able to parent. I wouldn't be able to do a number of these things. I wouldn't be able to produce. Um, and so, um, you know, you think of these things just like people having a myopic moment, a vacation, taking a break. Um, uh, so it's just like any other activity, but people somehow think that just these activities are not like any other activity. You know, drug policy in this country is, I, I think there's two easy words to describe, it's fucked up, right? <laughs> um, and it has been slowly changing. It started with cannabis and, you know, psychedelics probably are gonna end up going faster than cannabis because it's going through the federal process, the FDA process, the medical process. You know, your platform is about changing the entire concept of the, our understanding of these compounds, where they fit into our lives from the medical perspective, the sacramental and the exploratory perspective. Where is your hope for where we're going? Yeah, again, just go back to how we started. I'm just hoping that we live up to the principles that we espouse. Every citizen has at least three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If they want to use drugs as an expression of their liberty in their pursuit of happiness, the government will ensure that they have high quality drugs that they can use. That's it. And I don't need or I don't want them to have some um, in-between, like a med the medical profession, um, to um, prescribe the medication. Clearly, if people have a disorder that requires a physician, that's different, of course. Uh, but can you imagine me going to my doctor getting a prescription for alcohol? It's silly. And so that's what we're, uh, I'm trying to make sure we don't have that situation for MDMA and for other drugs. Because the, frankly, the medical profession is cops with stethoscopes. Can I ask what you're working on next? Uh, yeah, I'm working on a new book. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm not really saying what it is yet, but okay. you know um, it's going to challenge um, some of the nonsense that, uh, uh, that we talk about in the public. And it won't be about drugs, but it'll be about something bigger. I do wanna go back a little bit you know, we started a conversation about addiction and, you know, there are a lot of people who have, you know, perceptions, misperceptions, beliefs, you know, and one of the thought is, is that there's an addiction gene, right? And that some people have a, a genetic predisposition towards becoming addicted to whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It's that they are going to, you know, as a, a, a clinical researcher, a neurobiologist, what are your thoughts on that thinking around the, the genetic predisposition towards addiction? You know, I, I, as a scientist, I'm really happy and supportive of people 
pursuing uh, research activities, looking for genes, you know, because you may be looking for something and find something else. That's really cool. So uh, I'm really supportive of that endeavor. Uh, uh, but the notion that there's an addiction gene, um, we don't have any evidence to indicate that at the moment, and I doubt that we ever will. Um, but I'm glad people are pursuing that line of research. Look, you've been unbelievably generous with your time. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to? Uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you for what you all do and just keep doing it because you're doing it uh, really well. Obviously, every people know about this. Um, and so uh, thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Special thanks to Dr. Carl Hart, chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, where he is also the Ziff Professor of Psychology. You can learn more about Dr. Hart and his work over at his website, drcarlhart.com. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, please reach out on Twitter at the handle at the underscore GreenRush or on Instagram at the GreenRush underscore podcast or drop us an email at GreenRush at KCSA.com. Lastly, please subscribe to the GreenRush in your favorite podcast app. That was about three takes. Me, three takes. <laughs>